We all have people in our lives that we want to please, and even to some extent people in our lives that we should uh, want to please. And obviously that can be taken to you know, unhealthy, unbiblical extremes of being a people pleaser, and that's what it's all about. And, that, and that's not it, but to some extent there are people that that's the way it should be. Uh, probably most of you have some kind of work relationship in this room. If you are an employee, it's natural and it's even good that you would want your work to be pleasing to your employer. Or if you're an employer or you run your own business, you should want your customers, your clients, to be pleased with the good or service that you are providing. To that extent, that's a good and right thing. There's also relationships. You think of your friends or a spouse or family, right? You want your actions to please those people. But we probably all know the frustration that can come from when one of those relationships, it feels like you can't please them. And even from what they communicate, you don't even know what would please them. And now I was just, I'm writing down all the names of the couples I just saw look at each other after that part, and we'll be in touch. That was a joke. The 9 a.m. got it. But all right, that was, that was a joke. But we know that frustration. When there's somebody you want to please, uh, but you're, how do I do that? And it doesn't seem like anything I do does please that person. And although, to some extent, there, there should be some people that we want to please in this world in the right way and for the right reasons, ultimately we were made to please God. That is who we should be most focused on pleasing. And the good news is that frustration we sometimes feel with people, how in the world am I ever going to please this person? God has very clearly told us what pleases him. And we want to look at it mostly from one verse and kind of branching out to the the book of the Bible that it's in this morning. And that's going to find us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 verse 6. So we're kind of taking a break from the gospel of John today. We finished up chapter 16 last week. We're starting chapter 17 at the end of the month. Next week we have a, a guest uh, Pastor Kent Dresdo from North Creek Church in the Bay Area in California will be here ministering the word to us, Pastor Charlie, the following week. And then we'll be diving into John 17. But today I kind of just wanted to share with you something that's been on my heart uh, from this verse. And even just thinking back to last month, driving up to Ignite, our summer camp, couldn't get this verse out of my head as I was thinking and praying for what God would do that weekend or what God might do through this church My mind kept being drawn to this verse, and I want to share it with you and hope that we can all draw some helpful things from it this morning. So let me read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, here we are in Hebrews chapter 11, and the whole chapter is about faith. And even sometimes it's referred to as the hall of faith, as it goes back to the Old Testament and pulls out all these amazing examples of men and women who did things by faith. In verse 6, it kind of steps away from all the different historic examples of by faith, you know, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and so many others. And it gives a comment about what faith is like. That faith is necessary because without it, it's impossible to please God. 
And whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it's kind of telling us the same thing, but in two different ways. First, it kind of tells us negatively, hey, if you don't have faith, you can't please him. And then second, here's a little bit of what faith actually looks like. And it starts with believing that God exists, but then it says, and. It's not just believing that God exists. It's believing that he rewards those who seek him. And so if we seek to understand, well, what is biblical faith? When the Bible talks about faith, what does it mean? Because our culture loves to talk about faith, but it's kind of like, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, the Bible makes it clear, this kind of faith is about more than just, sure, I'm not an atheist. I believe that God exists. It also extends to say, I believe that God is worth seeking, worth pursuing, worth living for. Look back at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us a little more about faith. And it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction is a pretty strong word. Or one way to describe it, you know, we think about beliefs that we hold. Well, convictions, those are the beliefs that hold us, right? We are held by these things. And if you're really convinced and you're really convicted that something is true, you're going to act on that faith. And that's what we see again and again in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, these people did something. Their faith-fueled action. And we know the Bible also reminds us that faith without works is dead. If you're not going to live on it, then you're not really convicted that what you say you believe is true. And so as we think about biblical faith, I want us to consider it as it pertains to three different things in your life. So if you take your notes, your note sheet out, you can jot down these things. And number one, the first thing I want us to think about as it pertains to faith in our lives and pleasing God, the first thing I want you to think about is your salvation. Your salvation. And that's what a lot of the book of Hebrews has been about. And it's called the book of Hebrews because that's kind of that kind of sums up what we know about it. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And if you want my kind of personal hot take on who I think wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. <laughs> but I've had so many people say, oh, I think it was so-and-so, I think it was so-and-so. And I'm like, after 2,000 years, I think we don't know. We're not going to know. And so we see some books like 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they're named after the author, but we don't know who wrote this. And then a lot of the other books in the New Testament are named after the city it was written to. Well, this one doesn't tell us where it was written to. But from the content, it seems very clear that we know the kind of people that it was written to. It was written to Hebrews, or in other words, Jewish people. And it seems that these were particularly Jewish people who had made a commitment to Christ, but were now being tempted and even it seems pressured and persecuted to kind of go back to their old way of living and back into the old Jewish religious system. And this should ring a bell with us if we've read the rest of the New Testament. Uh, You think even of the book of Acts, so much of the persecution that Paul received was from Jewish people who didn't like what he was saying about Jesus. Or we think of the books of Galatians and Romans that were written to kind of argue against this idea that you have to do these things to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And those things make clear, no, we are saved by faith. And we are saved by faith alone. 
So I want to give you a phrase to think about with each one of these things as we consider biblical faith. And as we think about your salvation, I want you to write down faith over works. Faith over works. When it comes to how will you be saved? How will you get right with God? What's that going to take? What's that going to look like? Hebrews makes it clear it's going to take faith. And faith, one thing, whenever you hear people in our culture talk about faith, you need to always say faith in what? And Hebrews has made it very clear what our faith should be in. I'm going to turn you to a lot of different passages this morning, but they're all going to be in the book of Hebrews, okay? So I want to start by going back to the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Because we think about, hey, faith over works. Faith in what? It doesn't waste much time getting there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. A lot of that sounds very similar to what we read earlier during worship from Colossians 1. But then look at how it describes what he did. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So it's right from the beginning, we're talking about a savior who has made purification for sins, and then sat down at the right hand of God. Or ultimately, as we've said often and others have said, there's only two types of religions in this world. There are religions of human achievement that basically tell you, this is, these are all the steps, these are the works, these are the rituals that you can do to get your way back to God. And then the other type of religion is the religion of divine accomplishment that begins by saying, this is what God has done to make a way for you to be reconciled to God. And there's only one religion in that second category, and that's biblical Christianity. A message that is not based on works, it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible makes it clear there are It calls us to turn from our sin and believe. We have to respond to this good news, but it is not about us doing a bunch of things to earn our way back to God. It's about what God has done to open the door for us to be reconciled to him. That is the message of biblical Christianity. It's about what Jesus has done. And that's really what Hebrews tries to drive home to these Hebrew professing believers. One phrase that kind of sums up so much of what is taught in the book is Jesus is better. Jesus is better, chapter 1, than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priests of the Old Testament. Jesus and the new covenant he opens is better than the old covenant. There's so much rich truth about Jesus in this book. And it really starts to sum up all of these things as we get to chapter 9. So turn to Hebrews chapter 9 now starting in verse 24, as it starts to sum up, okay, Jesus, he's better than 
the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests of the Levitical priesthood. And it says in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not its own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has done this, and he has done this definitively once for all, and he, through his work, has put away sins. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Christ returns, there's not like the cross 2.0, right? No, when he returns, it is the crown. He returns as the king to save his people. The cross is done. His work is done. And we see more of that in chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Again, it compares him to the priests of the Jewish religious system. And it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Just that's something to be clear about. The New Testament makes it clear. It was never all about the sacrifices. It was always all about faith. Sacrifices were how they showed that faith, but it was not the sacrifices. It says right there, they can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The animal sacrifices could not do it. Christ did it once for all. And now he's finished that work. He has sat down at the right hand of God. Christ has done it. Now, it's a little difficult because I am not talking to a room full of Hebrews today. And I seriously doubt that there is even one person in this room that thinks, man, to get right with God, I got to leave here today and find some animal and sacrifice it to atone for my sins. I don't think there's one person here that actually thinks that. But if we were to write an epistle to the Americans, we'd have to probably cover a lot of these same concepts even if it's not sacrifice, but there's a lot of things that people think, uh, by doing this thing, I can earn my place in the family of God. There's a lot of people who think, well, hey, if I I just go to church and I make sure I, I go to church every week, then I will be good with God. Or if I make sure this doesn't collect too much dust, you know, I'll be okay and I'll go to heaven. But one thing I would say in line with the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better Jesus is better than you, and you cannot make up for your sin. You you cannot do enough good. But there's a lot of people who think, well, I can be good enough. I can try hard enough. I can turn my life around. And, you know, if I can just defeat this one sin, then I'll know that I am good with God. No, you need Jesus. And that's really one of the warnings of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Turn back with me now to chapter 4, as he really leans into these people saying, no, you need to Embrace this truth about Christ and stop relying on 
this old system and rely on Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's very interesting. If I said, hey, how many of you would really like to rest this afternoon? I think we're going to get a pretty good response rate to that. Rest sounds good. But if I said, well, hey, let's, let's go get some rest this afternoon, but let's be afraid lest anyone should fall short. You'd be like, how hard is it to go, to go rest? I just got to go home, get horizontal, and I'm good, right? That's all, that's all I need. But here he's saying, hey, let's enter the rest, but be careful lest some of you fall short. Because it's not very hard to lay down on the couch and take a nap. It is hard to admit, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I need a Savior. That is hard. But he's encouraging them. And he goes back to the Old Testament and even says, hey, be warned. Do this today. Today is the day. Do not harden your heart. In verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We are to enter the rest that Jesus can provide, and only Jesus can provide, but that gets difficult because we have to say, I can't do it, I haven't done it, I'll never do it, I need a Savior. And I want everyone here to know, hey, my faith is in Christ, and I'm depending on Him. And if you're still depending on your works or depending on just being here this morning, thinking that that somehow makes you right with God, today needs to be the day that you truly enter the rest that only Jesus can give. And if you're wondering, hey, is that me or not? I mean, one question I would ask you is, well, hey, if you were to get hit by a semi-truck on the way home from church this morning and die, would you go to heaven? And why? Or why not? And if the first things that come to your mind and come out of your mouth are, well, I do this, and I do this, and I do this. I, red sirens are going off in my mind, because that's not what the Bible says. If we're wondering, well, hey, why am I going to go to heaven? The first thing that should come into your mind is, because Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, died for a wretch like me. That's my hope. And he rose again. And if it's anything else, be careful, because you might be missing the gospel. Missing the truth that it is all about what Jesus has done. Now, do our works play any factor in that? Yes, the Bible makes sure that lots of people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but their works show I'm totally lying by saying that. But the first thing should always be Jesus died for me. The perfect sacrifice for my sin. Have you come to that place? If not, today is the day. And if you say no to that, it's saying you're hardening your heart. Say yes to salvation through faith in Christ. And one thing the Bible makes clear, Old Testament, New Testament, Hebrews, is we are saved by faith. But it also makes clear that's not it. Repeatedly, it makes it clear, and the whole point of this chapter is the righteous is not just saved by faith, the righteous live by faith. Faith is not like, all right, I've got faith, I'm a Christian, I'm good now. Faith then is what drives you forward to live the Christian life. So the second thing I want us to think about this morning is your spiritual growth. If you're confident my faith is in Christ, I am saved, how am I going to grow? How am I going to become more like Christ? Faith has to be at the center of that. And think about the context of this letter. 
where they're tempted of, you know, just, hey, going through the motions, doing the sacrifices, doing the rituals, you know, that's what I've got to do. And he's saying, no, it's not those things that will propel you to grow. It is faith that will do that. So the phrase I want to give you about your spiritual growth is trust over ritual. Trust over ritual. That if you want to grow as a Christian and you want to live a life of faith, what's going to help you do that is not just, hey, go through all these motions. It's no, cultivate a trust in the power and the promises of God. And as you do that, you will grow. Now, let's be clear. Rituals are not in and of themselves evil. Even today as Christians, there are symbolic actions that we are commanded to do. Mainly the Lord's Supper, which we do the first Sunday of every month as a church, and baptisms. We're commanded and instructed to do those things. Those are symbolic actions that that reflect what Christ has done for us. And those are not bad things. They're commandments. They're good things. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why you, if you are a Christian, need to get baptized. And if you have not been baptized since you are Christian, we're doing a baptism at the end of this month. Sign up online today because that is important. But it's not just getting baptized or taking the Lord's Supper. It's not that there's some magical power just in the actions themselves. What makes those powerful is faith. Faith is what motivates us to do those things, and those things are meant to reinforce our faith. And there's a lot of other things that maybe start to become rituals, but they're not really symbolic, but think about things you know a Christian should do. Read the Bible, pray, go to church, serve at church. Those are all good things, but the power doesn't just come from doing those things as a ritual. The power comes as you do those things from a place of faith and trust and for them to build your trust. And I want us to look at some examples, even from Hebrews 11, of what that looks like. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 verse 6 and ask ourselves, where, did, where does this verse come from? Well, it actually is an explanation after it talks about Enoch, all the way back from the early chapters of Genesis. And look at what it says in verse 5 about Enoch. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So Enoch never died. God just took him straight to heaven. And maybe if you've done Bible trivia or grew up in the church, you know he's one of two people we read about in Scripture that that's true of. Enoch and Elijah that are just taken straight from earth into heaven. And Lord willing, very soon, you and I might join that list as Christ comes for his church. But Enoch, one of two that was taken straight to heaven. Well, how does that happen? And it seems, well, part of the reason for that was before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And you're like, well, I would, I would like to be taken. How do I please God? Well, then it explains. How do you please God? You're not going to do it without faith. You have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And in Genesis, the phrase it uses more than pleasing God is that Enoch walked with God. 
Enoch had a closeness with God. And you think about, one writer brought up the image of a dog. You know, you can, you can walk a dog, but it's hard to go on a walk with a dog because the dog's usually doing its own thing. In fact, most of the people in my neighborhood, it looks like the dog is walking the person. It's kind of how that looks like it's going. To, to really walk with somebody, as one other writer put it, you've got to be in the same place, on the same path, at the same pace. Right? Same place, same path, same pace. And that's the idea of walking with God. Saying, God, I want to be in the same place as you, on the same path as you, going at the same pace as you. You don't get the sense that Enoch was just going through religious motions and going through rituals. You get a sense that Enoch actually had a close, intimate relationship with God. And that's what God wants for every believer here in this this room. And so... And then as we think about that from a New Testament perspective, it often uses this idea of walk in the Spirit. As we rely on the Word that the Spirit has given us, as we seek to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that's what we should seek. And that's going to come as we believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Let's think about the rituals or the things we would call the spiritual disciplines, even things we've talked about recently. We do not do those things because they just have a power in themselves or, you know, hey, that kind of adds to my spiritual point tally. That's not why we do those things. We do those things from faith and a trust in God and because they build our faith. I mean, let's just fast forward to tomorrow morning when that alarm clock goes off and you're like, I could get up and read the word and pray or I could go back to sleep. We've all been there. Can I get an amen from the congregation, right? We've all been there. What's going to motivate you to get out of bed, get in the Word, and spend time on your knees before God? If all that is to you is a ritual, if all you think that's doing is like, okay, getting me some more grace points with God today, you're going to start to think, you know, I think sleep is going to help me today more than that. But if you really believe that God exists, and that He rewards those who seek Him, you're going to say, I got to get out of bed. I got to seek the Lord because He promises a draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And I got to get out of bed and draw near to God because that's what I need more than anything else. And I believe that as I do that, it will be worth it. We do that even for our own good as we seek the Lord and we say, God, you're worthy and I want to know you. I want to walk with you. So I'm going to seek you because you promise if I seek you, you'll be found and you will draw near to me. Faith should fuel just the basic spiritual disciplines in our lives. And as we think about spiritual growth, we're probably thinking, well, that means I'm probably going to say no more to sin in my life. I'm going to grow and become more Christ-like, and I'm going to sin less in some ways that I do. Well, how are you going to do that? Faith, trust over ritual. Going through the motions isn't going to help you fight the temptations you're going to need to fight this week. Trust in God, believing that Jesus is better than your sin will. 
We have an example of that down in verse 24 of Hebrews 11. It's the example of Moses. It's the example of Moses. It says, by faith, when he was grown up, sorry, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He said no to the fleeting, the fleeting pleasures of sin because he thought Jesus had something better to offer. Even though in the moment, that something better looked like suffering. I would rather suffer for Jesus than experience the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. We've got to start seeing Jesus as better than our sin. And the reward that God will give as something that will satisfy more than sin can. Think of when, my, when I was a kid and my dad was teaching me how to play golf. The, the course we would play the most, Brackenridge Park in San Antonio, Texas, the eighth hole was a par three where you just got to hit your ball over a lake and get to the green. Well, my brothers and I deposited so many balls over the years in that lake that we would affectionately as a family refer to that as Blake Lake, right? Because we feel like we had ownership. We'd invested in that lake. And guess what? The same thing would happen every time you come to the eighth tee. You'd think, don't hit it in the water. Don't hit it in the water. Don't hit it in the water, Benjamin Adam Blakey. Don't do it. And guess what would happen every time? Hit it in the water. How many people fight sin by don't sin, don't sin, just say no to sin, don't sin? How's that working out for you? Because guess what? Sin, it, it has something to offer you. It's, there is some pleasure in sin. It feels good to just let go in your anger and just vent that out. It can feel good to give in to the lustful desires of your flesh. But it says here, those pleasures are fleeting. And even suffering for Christ would be better than that. God isn't trying to keep you from sin, just like, hey, because I want to keep you from something good. He's saying, no, I want to give you something better. And that's why I want you to say no to sin. With sin, joy may last for the night, but sorrow comes in the morning. With God, the sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And those who sow in tears will reap in shouts of joy. And you've got to believe that, and you've got to bring your mind back to that to say no to sin in your own life. And how do we say yes to God? And when we're tempted and tried, how will we be proven faithful in that? Let's look at one more example, the example of Abraham in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What an incredible thing. I mean, if you have a child or if you have a son, imagine putting that son on the altar. What in the world could motivate you 
to actually do that? Well, it tells us right there the, in verse 19, it says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. How did Abraham do it? It says he had received the promises. And he knew, Isaac, this was the son that God promised me. And he knew, even if I go through with this, God will not break his promise. And if God has to raise this son from the dead, he will. That's how Abraham did it. When you go through the biggest trial of your life, what's going to get you through that faithfully? A trust in the unshakable promises of God. That's what's going to do it. Not just going through the motions. I really trust God. I know his promises and I know that he will not break them. So I'm going to hold on to him in faith and in trust. Duty is important. It has its place. But that's not the only thing that's going to get us through the Christian life. A real trust and faith in God. It's going to be impossible to please God without that. But we've been talking mostly about things that really deal with us and our own spiritual walk. And we see some of that in Hebrews 11. But we also see people that wasn't just their own life. They went out and they did something that glorified God. Look at the description starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And then even there in verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Look at all these amazing things these people then went out and did by faith. The third thing I want us to think about today is your service. Your service to God. These people that we read about, they did some big things in the face of danger for God. They did things that would make us afraid. Consider the example of Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, I know that many people in this room knows know what it's, what it's looked like to move to another place. Because many of you have recently, many of us, have recently moved here. And maybe there were some things about that process that seemed a little bit scary. And that's legitimate, moving to a new place. There's things you don't know. But let's be careful. Let's not call ourselves Abraham. Look at how it described him. He didn't know where he was going. Did you come here not knowing where you were going? Did you just get in the car and say, all right, God, where are we going? I don't think so. When you got here, were you living in tents? I don't think so either. In fact, for most of us, getting here was a step up in your living conditions. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He lived in tents as a stranger and an exile. 
And if we're going to serve God in ways like that, what we're going to need is courage over fear. That's what I want you to write down next to service. We need courage over fear. And we see this in the other examples, starting in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Can you put yourselves in their sandals for a moment? Hey guys, the sea's open. Let's go through it. I think a part of me would be like, uh, how do I know it's going to stay that way, right? I'd probably have some fear in doing that. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Jericho was a big, intimidating city. You think some of them might have felt a little ridiculous just kind of marching around it once a day for a week? But they did it by faith. And as we think about the things I hope we pray for for this church, we're going to need courage. And some of you are going to step, have to step out and do things that might make you a little bit afraid. Our goal here is not just to build something comfortable and nice. It's to build something that pleases God and through faith makes changes in this world. Some of you, you're going to have to step up in ways that you've never served before. And you're going to hear that announcement of, hey, we need people to help out with Camp Compass or Awana, or I know, you know people need to jump into youth ministry or whatever it may be. And you might think, I just don't know if I can do that. And if you're being honest with yourself, the only thing that's keeping you from doing that is you're afraid. And you need to step out and encourage saying, hey, God is going to help me. Some of you have never really in your life ever faithfully given sacrificially and joyfully to God. And the reason you've never done that, if you're being honest, is you're afraid. You're holding on because you're, you're worried about your situation instead of saying, hey, might not be much or, or maybe some seasons it is, but saying, hey, I'm going to trust God and give to him first because I believe his promises. And some of you, you've been a part of a life group that as our church has grown has had to multiply. And sometimes that, that introduces some pain to your life. It's like, well, hey, I really liked these people and now they're, now they're in a different group or the group changes night and, and you know, your cheese gets moved a little bit and we don't like that, right? Well, how, how is that going to work when, all right, we're, we're playing Encompass Bible Church Canyon County and people that you know and love and serve alongside, now they're going to a different church or we want to get something started in Southeast Boise. That's going to create some pain and that's going to create some needs in this church, because there's going to be people doing work here right now that are going to leave to go do it somewhere else. And people are going to have to step up and fill their shoes. That's actually some of like the deep origin story of this church. Many of us that were a part of the planting team, we started serving together when our sending church had planted a different church. And there were some holes that needed to be filled. And we were like, hey, let's jump in and serve in a college ministry together. That's going to have to happen here. And we're going to have to figure out some different things. We're going to need to prayerfully consider, hey, how do we reach the state of Idaho? How can we try to work to make it where nobody in Idaho lives beyond reasonable driving distance from a church where they can go and hear somebody faithfully teach the Bible and find solid Christian community? Shouldn't that be the way that it is? Well, to do that, some people are probably going to have to leave and go out, and that's going to present some unique challenges, planning in a smaller community than, you know, one of the fastest growing communities in the country. That's going to be different. And someday, we're going to need to ask, all right, who's going back to Seattle, to the Bay Area, to Portland, 
to be a part of God's team in those cities to continue to faithfully preach the word, right? Some of you are like, small town Idaho, I like that. The Treasure Valley is getting too big for me already. Okay, how about going back to the places where people are fleeing and fleeing in many times because they're just becoming godless places. Who's going to do that? Do you think that's going to present some unique challenges going into those kind of communities to try to be faithful? You get a lot of warm reception to preaching the gospel and talking about the Bible in Boise, Idaho. And how long is it going to stay that way? I don't think you're going to get the same reception if you go back to some of these places. People are going to have to rise up and say, that sounds scary, but I'll do it by faith. And we don't know when, and a lot of this stuff might be in the future, but we need to lay the seeds right now. What happens when God, somewhere in some far corner of the earth, opens a door for our church that is just too clear and too much of a God thing to pass up? When there is just, you know, almost Macedonian call level, open door, hey, Compass Bible Church, Zimbabwe. God has opened the door. Who's going to go? Who's going to go be a part of getting this work off the ground? That's going to be scary. But we're going to need courage over fear. And some of you, God is going to call to be a part of something like that someday. So I want to give you two things, actually, to think about for our third point. If you're going to serve God by faith, you're going to need courage over fear. And then you're going to need to focus on heaven over here. It's got to be more about heaven and eternity than it is about right here and right now. That's what these people were like. Look at what it says in verse 13, continuing about Abraham. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This world is not our home. And I know We love the Treasure Valley. It is an incredible place to live. This is not our home. You are a stranger here. You are in exile. Our priority is heaven. And it says those people that live with that kind of faith, those are the people that God looks at and says, those are my people. Those people that trust me that way, that they're not all about this world. They're not all about building their kingdom here. They're about building my kingdom. I'm preparing for them a kingdom that's going to blow the Treasure Valley away. That's what God is saying, and that's the heart that he wants us to think about. We're excited. We're going to give you more of an update. We had a member of our church, John Sanborn, was just over in Uganda with our missions partner. I know many of you were praying. God answered so many of those prayers for working equipment, good weather, good health. It was an amazingly productive time. We're going to let you know more about that next week. And many of you had the chance to meet or at least hear our missionary partner, over there, Shannon Hurley, the pastor of the church there and the leader of that ministry. And it all started back as kind of a young man with him having a heart for missions and specifically a heart for Uganda. And so he was in seminary getting trained to go and lead the work there. And as a seminary student with you know, a wife and a growing family, he needed to make ends meet. So he got a, a, you know, a job doing 
some sales, and he became immensely successful at it. A, a job that was originally just to you know, make ends meet and pay the bills actually became something making him wealthy beyond what he anticipated through that. And as that happened, he didn't think, yeah, you know, maybe I'm called to this job instead. Yeah, you know, hey, this is actually pretty nice, right? In Uganda, that sounds not as nice, right? No, he didn't say that. He actually used how God had blessed him to help him go get started in Uganda. And we think of this church, I got here three years ago. I'm amazed at all of what God has done over the last three years. I got to go spend some time in Uganda about three years after Shannon had got there. Not the same story. Not much fruit to show for it. In fact, they had been three years full of opposition, betrayal, dealing with corruption that was seemingly setting back their ministry. And as I got there, they were getting ready to move to a new place to where they are now. And we went there and we were literally living in tents. There was one structure on the property at some squatter's hut, some small brick structure in an outhouse that, trust me, you don't want any part of, right? That's all that was there. And I remember going there. I was a college student at the time, and even some of the faculty from the school, we were there just standing in the middle of this field. Like there's nothing around, just some open spaces and some just dense bush in Uganda. And we're standing in the middle of a field reading this passage together, talking about those who are strangers and exiles. And this one professor that I had spent a lot of time with was kind of, you know, in a good way, kind of this crusty old professor, you know, who kind of talk like this and you want to get him fired up, you start talking about conservative politics or USC football and all, he'd get going, right? Well, he's out there in the middle of this field, like weeping as he is seeing what he's reading about in scripture happening right in front of him. And you're going to be amazed. There was nothing there when I was there. And you're going to be amazed some of the pictures you're going to see next week and all that God is doing there. And it happened because somebody said, this world is not my home. It's not about being a successful businessman. I want to do something for God that leaves where I am, leaves where I'm going. And even when I get there, it's going to be hard and God's going to change plans and move somewhere else. But somebody had faith and said, you know what? I believe that God rewards those who seek him. And that's the mindset we all need to live with. That doesn't mean we all need to To move, God needs work done right here. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about where we live, but we should live faithfully in the Treasure Valley, but live faithfully for heaven. That should be our focus. And really, the more we live for heaven, the better the Treasure Valley will be. As people don't make it all about themselves and their own lives, but people really live for the kingdom. That's how even we could have the biggest impact right here where we live. So I want us to step back from everything for a moment and really consider when all is said and done, what's really going to matter? What's really going to matter about you? What's really going to matter about our church? It's really going to come down to this, did we please God or not? That's what's going to happen when you stand before God. What you're going to want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. That we pleased him. And when God finally evaluates our church, it's not just going to be about numbers or a building or, or whatever it is there. It's going to be, did we please him or not? And what's going to make the difference? How can you please God? He's made it very clear by faith. That I trust him. I know I can't save myself. I seek him every day. 
and I fight sin every day because I trust him and I'm willing to do whatever he says. I'm willing to go wherever he leads because of faith. As things kind of slow down in August and many of us prepare kind of for a new year of ministry or a new year of school or family life at the end of this month, I hope we take some time to really seek the Lord and pray, God, make me this kind of Christian. God, make our church this kind of church that pleases you by faith.